it is myth and story and archetype and dreams that helps us remember who we are, literally, what it was that we came here to be, that helps us unfold that sense of calling. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 54. Today, I'm sharing my interview with Sharon Blackie, a wonderful mythologist, writer, speaker, human being who is an important teacher in my life and whose work is so related to the things we talk about on this podcast. It was an honor to talk to her, and I'm psyched to share it with you. I also wanted to share uh, the book series that I've been reading this summer that has blown my mind and came to me through Sharon and her podcast, This Mythic Life. Her second episode was an interview with the author, Manda Scott, and I am so glad I bought the first book because... I mean, I'm going to just like hold these in my heart in a very special way for the rest of my life. So it's the Boudicca series, B-O-U-D-I-C-A. The Boudicca was a real um, historical figure. She was a woman living in Britannia in the first century who was a warrior and a leader of her people and fought a number of successful revolts against the invading Roman colonizers. And so the book is just a an imagining of what her life was like, what her people's lives were like. Uh, the four books, there are four of them. And it's just, you know, if you yearn for the old ways, as you probably do if you listen to this podcast. It's such a beautiful immersion into what it might have looked like. You know, she bases as much on fact and the historical record and, um, you know, archaeological finds as she can. And at the end of each book, she talks about like what was fact um, in the book. And I love that. I love reading her process. And then she has such an amazing way of filling in the details that make for compelling fiction, which she shared about on Sharon's podcast. So she lived alone for the six years that she wrote the books with dogs, I believe. And she developed this technique of dreaming, as she calls it, dreaming while awake. And when she was in the dreaming is when Uh, the book would come to her and she would write from that state. And you can tell it's really special writing and it's good writing too. This isn't one of those like historical fiction thing that someone's just trying to sell a bunch of books and um, they're a crappy writer. (laughs) She's a really, really good writer. And the plotting is so good. It never seems contrived and it never gets boring. And the way she interweaves characters and events from the past I just I'm I'm in awe I'm in awe of her writing both the like actual execution of it and the content is just so so beautiful um so you know even if you do have ancestry in Britain I think it would for sure interest you but even if you don't I think that anyone who yearns to understand how tribal peoples before colonization gathered information, passed down wisdom, 
um, nurtured their dreaming, nurtured their dreamers and nurtured their warriors as well. And just lived daily life, you know, the materials that they were using to make things. I feel like so many people listening to this will really vibe with these books. I just love them so much for the first time ever. I'm considering starting at the beginning as soon as I finish the fourth one that I'm on right now. And I'm finding myself slowing down, even though I just like can't wait to turn the page because I don't want it to be over. You know, there's a number of books in my life that I look back on and like, I wish I could read it again for the first time. (laughs) That's definitely how I'm going to feel about these. So thank you for introducing me to these books, Sharon. And thank you so much for writing them, Amanda. They are just beyond, beyond. Uh, So speaking of books, Sharon and I mention a number of books in this interview. And of course, they are all linked in the show notes. I try to link every linkable thing in show notes when I do these episodes. And the Patreon offering for this episode is a giveaway for one spot in the online course, Sisters of Rock and Root, that Sharon does. And this is open to everyone, not just patrons. You can enter at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Uh, It will close on September 17th, so do it before then. Uh, Sisters of Rock and Root is a unique year-long self-study online course, an experience for women who want to delve deeply into wild stories, myths, and archetypes, and so to connect in a grounded, rooted way with the cycles and seasons of the year and the themes associated with them as they arise in your own life. Uh, If you have more questions, the link will be there at Patreon, and you can just learn all about that course. There's much, much more on the page there. And finally, I just want to share a few sentences from a few different iTunes reviews here, and I think you'll see what I'm getting at pretty quickly. Amber is a wonderful interviewer and host. Even just her voice transmits calm and wisdom. I greatly enjoy the information Amber and her guests are putting into the world. I learn something new with every episode. I do have a really hard time with her voice, though. As to my ear, it sounds forced and fake. I love this podcast. I feel like we all go so deep together with Amber and her illuminating guests. Her voice is so soothing. The topic and guests on this podcast are phenomenal. Thank you. But I am having a hard time with her speech slash cadence. It does feel forced? Flowery? I just found you and so far your content and voice is a soothing balm. You have such a beautiful voice. Please create a guided meditation. (laughs) So I just, it's just so interesting to me, different people's experiences of the same thing and um, the things that people feel motivated to put online. Um, and like fully acknowledging that both of these reviews who don't like my voice also had very positive things to say about the show. Um, that's nice for sure. Thank you. Um, but you know, my, (laughs) my voice is neither forced nor fake. It very well may be flowery. Um, I believe that I've never been told that before to me, flowery is a compliment. (laughs) I love flowers. Um, 
And, you know, I live in California. I was born and raised in California. I've definitely heard people from other parts of the country, especially the East Coast, um, comment on the, like, lilting rhythms and cadence of Californians. So perhaps that's what folks are feeling here. And I think that, especially in the intros, um, sometimes I'm in a more dreamlike state. Sometimes I'm in my own dreaming doing this, you know, depending on how much sleep I've gotten or where I'm at in my cycle or who knows what else. Um, so I can see that being being something that can come through at some points as sounding different than at other points. Um And it's hard not to feel something about negative reviews like this. This is like not at all the worst thing anyone's ever said about me online. I've gone through many ups and downs um, and being someone with an online presence and lots of tears. Uh, These certainly didn't make me cry, but they do make me think of a wonderful quote from Georgia O'Keeffe that I thought I would share because I'm sure it can benefit many people out there. I have already settled it for myself, so flattery and criticism go down the same drain, and I am quite free. I love that. I'm certainly not there at all. I really like this idea of both flattery and criticism being irrelevant, being ignored by the person creating something and putting it into the world. Um, You know, everyone talks about ignore the haters, don't worry about the negative comments, and things like that, but very few people, I think only the wisest people talk about, um, ignore the praise as well. Just do your work, do your work and put it out there. So I'm not there. I don't know if I'll ever get there, but I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. And I'm grateful to Georgia for even planning that idea in my mind with that amazing quote. And yeah, for the people who don't like my voice, like I ain't mad at you. I'm not trying to call anyone out here. I just was reading those today and thought, what an interesting contrast between these people who have such different experiences of the same thing. Um, my voice is what it is. It's certainly not going to change. I hope something probably bad would happen if it changed. So I'm going to keep on keeping on. And as a final, final note, just very briefly, Sharon mentions Pat McCabe or Woman Stands Shining in this episode. And she's actually the first person on um, the This Mythic Life podcast, episode one interview. And that woman is Lila June's mother. Lila June was my guest on episode 38 of this podcast. So I thought that was a neat connection there. All right, let's get into this wonderful interview with Sharon Blackie. Hello, Sharon. Welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi, Amber, and thank you so much for inviting me. I'm uh, delighted to be a guest on your lovely podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. Uh, your your work has just touched me really deeply. There's clearly such a need for myth, for remembrance of the mythic imagination, and for the kind of earth connection and re-enchantment that you are teaching. And I'm excited to talk about all of that today. And I thought we could begin um, by having you tell us a story, since you're a storyteller. Uh, this is the, I believe, the first story in your book, If Women Rose Rooted. And um, thank you so much for being willing to share it with us today. Indeed. Uh, yeah, it is the first story. It's kind of the anchor story, I guess, for the book. 
Um, and it's a, just a tiny bit of background. It's a very old story. Um, it's believed to be of Welsh origin originally, uh, but it appears in um, Chrétien de Troyes' uh, version of Percival or, or the, um, the History of the Grail, which is the first of the French romances about the Grail. And it tells quite a different story of how the land became a wasteland from the standard version, you know, which happened a little bit later in uh, French legend and romance. So I'm just going to read it, if it's okay, the way that I told it in the book, which is topped and tailed a little bit by a character of mine um, who is part woman and part heron. So here goes. And the story is called The Loss of the Voices of the Wells. Do you know the Tamar, the great river which once cut Cornwall off from the rest of the world until they built a big bridge and let the others in? Do you know its story, the story of the water nymph Tamara, who was turned into her by her father into a stream and then grew up into a mighty river? I was looking for the source of the great Tamar one day, up among the willow trees by woolly barrows, when out of the corner of my eye I caught sight of a grey heron standing in the boggy waters from which the river is known to rise. At least, I thought she was a grey heron, but when I turned to look at it, in the place where I thought the heron had stood was a tall, skinny old woman, all dressed in grey and with straggly white hair. I imagined at first that she hadn't seen me, but then suddenly she turned her head and began to speak to me. I don't imagine you remember, she said, quite apropos of nothing, that once the court of the Fisher King could be found along the banks of the Tamar. I was taken aback, but found my tongue and answered politely that I had never heard such a story. She laughed. A curious sound, more shriek than laugh, if truth be told. It's no story, girl, she said. In the kingdom of Logres, for that was what this land was called in those days, were all the riches of the world, and they all came from the court of the Fisher King. Gold and silver, splendid furs, nourishing foodstuffs and beautifully woven cloth, the people did not lack for health and comfort and beauty. But more than this, from the court of the Fisher King came falcons and merlins, goshawks and sparrowhawks, wolf and bear, badger and fox, all the beautiful wild things of the land. In those days, when the king's court could still be found, there was such an abundance of riches throughout this land that everyone was awestruck by it. I don't know quite how it happened, for I didn't see her move, but all at once she was standing very close to me, her face just a couple of feet away from my own. Her eyes were black, black and shining as pools of tar, and I felt oddly vertiginous, as if I were being drawn in. It's not like that now, is it? Caught off balance, I simply shook my head. You want to know what happened? I nodded, of course, I've always loved a good story. Well then, I'll tell you what happened. You won't like it. She shrieked that strange, not-quite-laugh again, head tilted up to the sky and closed her eyes. She lifted her bony arms to the sky as if to call on it as a witness, and then she sighed, lowered her arms, and began. In the old days, as I was saying, the kingdom of Logris was rich and beautiful, and the land offered nourishment for all, for it was properly tended and cared for. It's a contract, you see, people and the land. You care for it, and it cares for you. The source of the kingdom's life, the life-giving blood which surged in its veins, was the sacred water of the wells, which flowed up out of the deep, potent waters of the other world. And the wells were tended by maidens, and these maidens were the voices of the wells. And this is how they served. If a traveller in need should pass by a well in those times, a well-maiden would appear, 
and, if he asked reasonably, offer him the food he liked best, and a drink of well water from her golden grail. This gift was given to all, freely given in the spirit of service to the land. But then there came a king in the land who did not cherish the old customs or understand his contract with the land and the duties of hospitality which travel both ways. That came, king's name was Amagon. The old woman paused and shuddered as she said his name, and I swear to you that a tremor passed through the ground beneath our feet as if the land shuddered too to hear it spoken out loud. As king, it was his duty to guard the land and those who lived on it. It was his duty to tend it and see that all was in good heart, for this is the sacred contract which maintains the balance of the world. It was his duty to keep the well-maidens safe, for they were the voices of the wells, and without the wells the land would lose its heart. But Amangon wasn't much of a man for duty, and the day came when he broke faith. On that day, a well-maiden, seeing him passed by, offered him food and water, as was the custom. But after eating the food and drinking the water, Amangon tore off her white dress, threw her across the stone wall which surrounded the well, and raped her, while his men looked on. Tears leaked from the old woman's eyes. Can you imagine? Can you imagine it, girl? A maiden from the sacred wells. Can you imagine how the earth itself must have cried out in horror? How the waters of the wells would have stopped mid-flow and recoiled from this evil which was visited on the land? But it did not stop there. After this violation, Amangon stole the well-maiden's golden vessel and kept it for himself. Though it did not stay with him, for the well-maiden's grail might not pass into hands such as his. He carried the maiden off and made her serve him. Then, seeing what the king had done, and taking their lead from him, all around the country his men began to rape the other well-maidens. So the maidens no longer came out of the holy wells and withdrew from the land altogether. And so it was that the people of Logris lost the voices of the wells, and the services of the wells ceased. This is how the land was laid waste. The leaves on the trees shriveled and died, plants withered, fields and meadows turned brown, and the earth lay barren and scorched. The waters of the land diminished, and the rivers ran dry, and no one could find the enchanted court of the fisher king, who had once made the land bright with his treasures. She looked at me long and hard. Do you think it was all long ago, girl, if it even happened at all? Do you think, because the land has grown green again, and the great Tamar flows strong and true, that we do not live in the wasteland still? Have you seen the great scars that men have made on the face of the earth? Have you seen the starving masses in the scorched lands, and the hungry hearts amidst the richness of the cities? Do you think there are no men like Amangon? And I could not answer her, for I knew that what she said was true. The green crept slowly back, she whispered, but in its heart, the land was still a wasteland, for the voices of the wells were lost, and the maidens and their grails were gone, and along with them passed the riches of the court of the great fisher king. With that, the old woman grew silent and stepped away from me, staring back into the boggy morass from which the great Tamar sprang. I stood with her for a while, and then I turned and began to walk down the hill. After a little while, I stopped to look back at her, but all I saw was a large grey heron standing on one leg, perfectly still. Mm, I love your writing, Sharon. And why... <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah. Um, 
why why is that story the anchor for the book? What is what is the core message in the book? Well, the story tells um in my way of looking at it, there are many ways in which you can interpret a story. Of course, there's not never just one, but I see it as twofold, um, that at the time when the land was disrespected, when the contract between uh, the people and the land was broken, the king and the land, um, at the same time, uh, women were disrespected. And so the rape of the land parallels the rape of women and women lost their voices. And in our mythology, uh, here in Ireland, at least, and we believe in many of the other Celtic countries, women were the voices of the earth. Uh, so women, uh, female goddesses, if you like, were the goddesses of the land, represented the earth, represented, if you like, the anima mundi, the soul of the world. And this is a story about those voices being lost, being silenced. Uh, so at the same time, you know, as, as we lose women's voices, we, we, lose our, we lose our real connection and a sense of the sacred in, in the earth. Yeah, this this idea, this truth that the suppression of women and destruction of the land are really deeply interwoven. And I think that's why that story hits so deeply that we all know that to be true, even if we've never consciously thought it before. On an intuitive level, that connection runs so deep. And it seems to me too that it's it's easier to rape the land, destroy the earth subjugate the life givers of our species when we have lost our stories when we have fallen out of myth um do you see this mythlessness of our of our culture here as being interrelated with the suppression of the land and and of women I do indeed. I mean, I think if you look at the cultural mythology, and as a mythologist, that's something, and, and a psychologist, that's something that I've studied very deeply. That the stories that our culture is telling itself are stories of excess, they're stories of growth, um, of never-ending progress, they're stories of more, 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 they're stories of of the individual heroic, um, and uh, these are not what the old stories told us. This is a new thing, and so what I find very uh, inspiring and one of the reasons why I teach these old stories is precisely to inspire others to this understanding that our ancient stories, the stories of our ancestors in these lands, just like the stories of many other indigenous peoples around the world, tell a very different story. They tell a story of connection. They tell a story of the earth as sacred. They tell a story of a deep, um, of the, the other world being deeply interwoven with this one and they tell a story where women speak for the earth uh, and again you know i was working recently with um uh, pat mccabe a woman stand shining uh, danae and lakota tradition bearer um in the uk recently and we found that our stories our native stories were saying exactly the same thing this whole message about balance and harmony with the earth is is intrinsic to them and this whole message that women speak for the earth with the voices of the earth or in this case with the voices of the wells and so one of the reasons why i think it's so important to to work with these old stories is it gives us this sense of continuity it gives us a sense of lineage of this as something that we don't just make up but we actually go back and reclaim Mm. that that loss of lineage is so tied into the loss of of the original myths right when we don't have the stories of our people 
Yeah. Uh, we're so cut off from who they yeah. were and what wisdom they can give us. Indeed. And I think part of the problem, and I can only, you know, my my knowledge, I suppose, my expertise in these stories um, is very much in the European tradition, specializing in the Celtic tradition. But But when I was growing up, these stories were presented to me as simple fairy tales. They were presented as kind of entertainment for kids. They were they were curiosities. Um, you know, they were a little bit childish maybe, but they were never ever presented to me as a tradition. They were never presented as as like a mythology or um, the remnants of any kind of spiritual practice or way of really seeing the world. They were just just stories. And, you know, it horrifies me to say those words like, like anything is just a story, like that makes it meaningless. Uh, but they were never presented in the way that they might be presented that stories might be presented in, in other indigenous traditions around the world. So we're really not taught to see them. And that's why most of my work is going back to these old stories and saying, look, you know, just look at them from a different perspective. Look at them as really shedding light on how we how we view the world, a different way of living uh, than the story that our, our culture is telling ourselves about progress and and more and the heroic, that they're telling a very, very different message. And this is the message we badly need today, don't we? Oh, we sure do. It reminds me of my uh, time as a religious studies major when I was taught about uh, ancestor worship and animism as these, you know, backward, mm. throwback yeah. ideas. And you're right, we are just a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. We've progressed beyond that now um, as we destroy that's, our earth. Yep, that's theory. yep, that is the theory. But but it's interesting how sophisticated a lot of these stories are. Um, and I'm not just now talking about the Celtic tradition, but if you go back to other Western traditions, I mean, if you go back to Greek mythology, which, you know, everybody thinks they know about Greek mythology um, because it is so very popular and uh, you know, we know the names of the gods and goddesses and we see them in our literature and so on. But when you actually go back to the philosophy behind them, it is surprisingly complex and surprisingly sophisticated and surprisingly beautiful. Um, and again, you know, people don't go back looking at these these subject areas normally for inspiration for living. They just study them as some historical curiosity. So I think part of the the thing that I'm passionate about is just just trying to say to people maybe our ancestors actually knew something that that we've lost, you know, that it might be might be something really great to regain and to look at again. Um not to regress or try to go back to um you know some conceived of long lost golden age because I really don't think it was like that. I think we've learned a lot in 2000 years or more and I think that our knowledge can be applied to what our ancestors know if we take the best new if we take the best of it um, but we really really need to go back and, and kind of like start again from that beginning and say where did we go wrong you know what is it that we can go back and pick up and learn and bring to the contemporary world mm, absolutely I love that idea of the study of myth and fairy tale as what can we learn what can we learn about living in right relationship with the earth and as so many people are endeavoring to do that again. Um, I think that a lot of us as an herbalist and someone who's really, you know, in the realms of people seeking earth reconnection, that story is really easy to overlook. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And and again, it's part of the way that we that we have been taught to look at the world in a in a, in a culture that favors um, the scientific perspective, and and by the way, 
I think that has a place. You know, I had a scientific training and, and it stands me in good stead in its place. Um, but we're taught to value that way of looking at the world much more than we're taught to value stories, which are still just seen as entertainment. But, you know, if you go back all the way to Plato and the ancient Greeks and beyond, and then you pick up a thread that runs right through the depth psychology, which I have studied and practiced to this day and the, the work of Jung and the work of James Hillman, that idea that stories are fundamental to the nature of the universe carries on. You know, it may not be mainstream, but it's an unbroken thread all the way through. And so this, in this perspective, you know, we think in the 20th, uh, 21st, gosh, I'm, I'm behind myself, in the 21st <laughs> century, we imagine that, that we make stories up. But in this perspective, we don't make the stories up at all. And it would be ridiculous and arrogant to imagine that we did. The stories have an independent existence. And if we're very lucky, they happen to us. And in this perspective, stories are literally coming from the anima mundi, the soul of the world. The stories, in a sense, are the voices of the earth. And that is the way that the anima mundi, or in the Celtic tradition, the other world, tries to interact with us, just as it tries to interact with us in our dreams. You know, when we're open to images. Jung said that images, and particularly the images and stories, are, are the, the basic fundamental structure of the psyche of soul. And so that's, I think, why stories are a perfect teaching tool. And, if, and, and a tool for understanding and for different ways of perceiving the world. And if we can open ourselves up to them in a very genuine way and respect them and court them sometimes, I think they have an enormous amount to teach us about how to be in this world. Mm, yes, I love that idea that I, that I learned from you of the stories having independent existence outside of us, outside mm. of our human minds. And uh, you, um, you quote, is it Sean Keane? Yes, in his book and, and his idea that he brought forth that a myth is the power of place speaking. Exactly. And that is that is a very similar concept. So Sean Kane was a professor of, or is rather a professor of English at um, um, Trent University, I think, just outside of Toronto. And he wrote a book called The Wisdom of the Mythologies, which was very much about the mythology and storing of place. And yes, this idea that myth, myth literally springs from the land um, is central to that book. And um, the, in, in most of the ancient traditions of Europe and the Near and Middle East, that is exactly the same kind of thing. So if we look, for example, to ancient Sufi traditions, the mystic branch of, of what now we call Islam, we find exactly the same idea of um, uh, there was a French philosopher called Henri Corbin who studied this and brought it to the attention of the modern world, the, these old stories, and he called it the mundus imaginalis, which literally means the imaginal world. And so the ancient Sufis had this idea of a, a world which existed and had independent existence somewhere between the world of our intellect, you know, what we think we think, and the world of our senses, the physical world, which we're taught to believe is the only real one. Uh, there lies this third world, which is called the imaginal world, and that is the place where the stories live. That is the place where the archetypal energies and images that are in stories live. That is the place to use 
Jungian terminology where synchronicities arise, where dreams come from. And this is really conceived of in this old tradition as an absolutely real additional world. You know, and again, the beings in this world might be the characters that we call gods and goddesses in some of our traditions. And again, they're trying constantly to interact with us. And this imaginal world is kind of a bridge between the world of the intellect and the world of the senses. So that is why I think images and story helps us connect, you know, helps us literally get out of our heads, out of our intellects, back into the land, back into the earth. It makes me think of um, when I had my friend Asia Suler on the podcast, we talked about the other world. And I really loved this framing of it as, because when we talk about that, we talk about the imaginal realm. It's easy to think of it as a literal physical place that's separate from us. Um, but really conceiving it yeah. as like the here and now you know, within us. It, it's just, it's this invisible entity interwoven into the visible fabric of our lives and of our physical world. Yeah, kind of. I mean, the, the Irish tradition is rich, um, which I've, I've studied in, extensively as well as living here and having my heritage here. The Irish tradition is very rich in, in stories of the other world. And it's very clear if you if you study those stories properly that the other world is not a place um it's you know you can reach it from from various places you can reach it under hills you can reach it at the bottom of lakes uh you can reach it by on a riverbank you can reach it by crossing through a barrier of mist um you can reach it at any liminal any of places that we think of as liminal or threshold zones but the other world in the irish tradition is very very clearly a kind of overlay it's interwoven with this one it's inextricable it's not internal to us at all um it is inex it, it is kind of like a different layer of reality that 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 is overlaid onto this physical world of our senses and you cannot have one without the other you know the other world is everywhere and it's it's conceived of in the irish tradition very much as it's kind of like piercing a veil if you're lucky you'll catch a glimpse of it. You'll catch a glimpse of that reality. And that is why we have these traditions of at certain times of year, as well as in certain places, the veil becomes a little bit thinner and you get a glimpse of of, of what the other world really is. And it's easier for the other world then to impinge on, on what we think of as reality. Mm-hmm. I love this idea that you also brought to me through your writings of uh, Rollo May, that the person without a myth is a person without a home. And I think we can extrapolate yeah. that into the larger culture and say that the, a culture without a myth is a culture without a home. Or I, we just have so many like fragmented myths in the West now. And so many, like you've talked about unhelpful myths that are just worshipping this idea of endless extraction and growth. Exactly. And again, if you look back at the old stories, they 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 are teaching stories and they're teaching us a different way of being in the world. So one of my favorite folk tales in the Irish tradition uh, is a story of a, a cow called the glass gavelin. And she was the cow of plenty. And you see similar stories in other traditions too in Europe. And the story goes that the glass gavelin had milk for everybody. You know, she, she was an elder worldly cow and she could feed she could feed the entire country of Ireland and in times of war she would go round and she would feed the armies and, and make sure that everybody was nourished and she would always allow any anybody to take milk from her if they came with a pail uh, a bucket she would allow them to take a bucket full of milk from her anybody who came and the story goes that one day someone came with a sieve and milked her through the sieve into bucket after bucket after bucket and because of course the sieve 
was never full. Um, the glass gavelin, you know, kind of didn't know when to stop. But as soon as she realized that this was happening, she flew off and was never seen again in the in the in the land of Ireland. And that story is very much a teaching story about not taking too much, about knowing when it's enough, about living in balance and harmony with the land. And these are the old stories of our tradition, of our ancestral lineage. And, you know, we, they tell us that they tell us a very different way of being. And I often talk about the post-heroic journey in contrast to the, the kind of a phrase that everybody knows, which is Joseph Campbell's heroic journey, which is very individualistic and killing dragons and swashbuckling and, you know, all of all of that malarkey. Um, and just to say, OK, a post-heroic journey, you know, if we really thought about that really hasn't served us very well because it's killing the planet as well as us. Um, what, what does it need to look like? That post-heroic journey needs to be about balance and harmony and not taking too much. And can you just imagine if... From birth, children were raised up with simple, simple, small mm. folk tales like that, um, you know, embedding, yeah. embedding those values into them instead of what we get today, TV and iPads and, and all the wrong messages. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a, to me it's a really sad thing that people have lost that tradition of of telling stories to kids. And you know, it's funny. I I live in a in um, a very rural and remote part of Ireland, which is the Gaeltacht, um, the one of the Irish speaking areas in Ireland. And to an extent, those traditions are still there. You know, so um, quite often, um, if we have people to dinner or guests or whatever, we we will ask them to exchange a story you know, or to, to offer a poem or a song or something from their tradition. Uh, and we'll, we'll do exactly the same so that those, those old stories, those old poems, those old songs are not forgotten. You know, they're not just curiosities. They're act actively part of a living tradition in a house, uh, in your interactions with people. And if I were to encourage people to do any one thing, it would be to talk about those stories, you know, set up a story circle, um, ask your friends when they're around for dinner, which are their favorite stories. And it's really interesting. It sounds like a little bit of a soppy thing to do, but people can get quite animated and quite excited by by some of these things. And again, it bring it just makes them more real. Um, it, it, it makes them more real and it makes us believe that they might have greater relevance. Mm, I love that idea. That's that's beautiful. I'm going to do that. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about, uh, this idea of myth as the land speaking and your story of connecting with Pat McCabe from different traditions, but finding such similarities. And I'm thinking that, you know, overall sort of generalizing a lot of the myths of indigenous people, people who are living close to the earth, our ancestors, are going to be telling very similar stories, right? Because it's not mm -hmm. super complicated to be in right relationship with the earth and to be tending it in a regenerative yeah. giving way. But because yeah. landscapes are so different, the stories and the myths are going to be filtered through the literal physical um, attributes of the landscapes from which they come, which yeah. is what makes them so meaningful to the people living in those landscapes. Indeed. And, you know, if you look at, if we just take the characters um, in stories, for example, if we, you know, the characters that we think of as archetypal, um, archetypes 
are a very, very old idea, but Carl Jung was one of the ones who expressed it, I think, most clearly, perhaps, and, and most recently. And he looked at archetypes as potentials. So an archetype was kind of like a pattern. It was like a very fundamental, basic pattern of being. But but it was it was expressed an archetype would be expressed differently in different cultures so for example if we think of the wise old woman archetype you know that is a basic pattern when we say those words we all know that there is such a thing um it's they're in all the old stories they're in you know in even today we we still see them in our culture but but the clothes that that archetype wears are different from culture to culture. So in some of the Native American traditions, it might be grandmother spider or spider woman, depending on how they call her. You know, the old woman who weaves the world into being. In the Irish tradition, the wise old woman is the Kaliach, which literally means old woman. And she is the creator and shaper of the land. Um, in the Irish tradition, she is very much associated with um, high rocky places with with wild weather, a lot of rain, a lot of wind of the kind that we have here. She's very, she's kind of like a geotectonic force, like a geological force. You know, she almost personifies the land through its very, very long ages. And she makes sense here. The Kaliak only makes sense in Ireland, you know, precisely because she is so very much associated with our particular weather and our particular kinds of rock. But in another place, there will be another old woman archetype, you know, whether it's spider, grandmother spider, um, or um, in in the Scandinavian countries, the Norns, um, the kind of equivalent of the, the three fates were old women. Everybody has their own representative of these basic archetypes. And to me, the real trick, the real connecting trick is to find the archetypes in your place. You know, the ones that spring from the land where your feet are actually planted. And I believe that our old ancestral stories for, for those, particularly in your part of the world, who might, whose families might have um, migrated there in, in the past, the ancestral stories can kind of train us, train us into how to find the archetypes of the places where we find ourselves planted now. You know, they give us clues. Um, it's almost like a way of looking at the world that makes it easier for us to, to find the archetypes in our places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for descendants of colonizers in America like myself, and I think most of my listeners probably, um, it's kind of, we kind of have this opportunity where we can look to our ancestral myths to learn, and we can also look to the myths of the ancestors of the land where we find ourselves. Um, where our families right. have, have landed and, you know, we can just have an opportunity to to learn and to deepen in both of those ways. And I would love to learn more about the Kayak, Kayak, say it again. Kayak. <laughs> Kayak, yes. I've only ever read it. I always wondered how it was pronounced correctly. <laughs> uh, I know you have a, you know, a, a close relationship with this archetype with this woman, and I'd love to hear about how you met her and how she has, you know, informed your life and maybe your work. Yeah, well, I mean, she is really intrinsic to the Scottish and Irish Gaelic traditions. I mean, there are stories about her everywhere, and it's very interesting. She's an interesting character in that she doesn't appear very much in, in the form that we know her in the old texts. You know, in the old, uh, Ireland has a huge body of very 
ancient literary texts, but she doesn't very much appear in those literary constructions. But she's huge in folklore. You know, even to this day, there are stories about the Kaliak in every part of Ireland and many parts of Scotland. And so she's kind of gone down through the ages where other gods and goddesses have been lost by the wayside. She never has. And so the theory is that she's a very old goddess. She was probably pre-Celtic. Um, and in fact, in many, many parts of Europe, there are traditions of kind of giantesses, you know, of old women um, who are associated with the, the creating of the shaping of the land. And so that is, to me, where she, she comes from. She's very much a, she's kind of the old woman of the world archetype. You know, she makes it, she keeps it. In, in the Scottish tradition, particularly, she is a keeper of the balance. Again, you know, we come back to this concept of balance has been critical in the Celtic tradition. So she, there are many folk stories about her stopping a hunter from taking a female deer in the season where they're likely to be pregnant uh, or stopping hunters from taking too many deer um, and insisting that they just take their share. Um, and so she's a very, very fierce character. There are lovely stories about her, again, in the Scottish tradition, um, dancing across the mountaintops with a staff and where she strikes her staff on the ground, uh, ice and frost forms, you know, so she has this association with the winter season. Uh, sometimes she's portrayed riding on the back of a wolf. Sometimes she's portrayed with a, a um, herd of wild pigs running behind her and just this fierceness with hair everywhere and, you know, sometimes she has tusks and her face is blue. Uh, that idea of a very fierce old woman who will not tolerate the rape of the land, who knows when to say no, enough, not in my name, I think is a very, very powerful one for me, as it seems to be for, for many, many women in this part of the world now. So, yeah, I, I really um, began to understand her stories when I moved uh to an island called the Isle of Lewis in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, which is about kind of as west as you can get before you run into St Kilda and then all the way to, to uh, your part of the world. And she was very imminent in that landscape. Again, stories about her um, places named after her. Uh, and I lived in a place that was very remote. Um, there were very few people and certainly nobody that I had anything in common with. And so she kind of became a friend, if you like, you know, um, I would talk to her as, a, as I walked through the landscape that the old story has said that she had created. And um, yeah, so in that way, I became very connected through her stories. I became very connected to the land. It's interesting because I was thinking before we got on the call about what I really like about your work and your writing and your presentation of myth and story is that it it it's fierce. It's not precious. It's not dumbed down. Yeah. It really is all encompassing. Um, and and it, hearing you speak about her, I I feel like maybe she's sort of a I don't know, you know, a, a guiding archetype of your work. Like I can feel that energy in the way you filter all the myths that you share, not just not just hers. Yes, I think so. And I, you know, I th I think one of the things that I love about my mythology uh, is that in the stories there are consequences. You know, so the rape of the well maidens story. There are consequences of that act that the world becomes a, a wasteland. You know, it, it, you don't just get away with it. And it's not that I'm talking about 
punishment or retribution. Um, in Irish law, for example, the ancient law, what we call the Brehan law, was very was almost um, almost always a, a kind of almost a restorative justice process. You know, uh, so you didn't. Um, you didn't always get punished for crimes. You didn't get locked up or your hands chopped off or whatever. If you stole a neighbor's cow, you had to produce a cow. You know, you had to restore the balance in the world um, if you had committed a crime. And that sense of justice, of restoring the balance is critical. Uh, but there are consequences. Um, you don't just get away with stuff. And I, I really think that that is important in a world today where it's very easy to slip in our horror and in our grief into what I always think of, if you forgive me for putting it this way, a kind of an excess of love and light, you mm -hmm. know, and it, it doesn't really recognize that there is there, there is a balancing darkness to every light, you know, that there, there are other emotions which sometimes are appropriate in their place. And it's a kind of all-encompassing mythology that just says no fierceness. Sometimes we have to stand. Sometimes we have to say no not, you know, I'm not having this, not in my name. And I love all of those very fierce women of all ages in Celtic mythology who do that, who represent that kind of wild, fierce, instinctual sense of what is right um, and, and are going to do whatever they can to, to uphold that sense of rightness and truth. Uh, so yeah, the Kayak to me is very much one of those characters. And as I grow into approaching elderhood, I'm 58 now, you know, she becomes a real guiding spirit for what it might be to be a good elder. But that is the subject of my next book, which I'm just writing now. So I'm not going to go too much into detail on that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, I like to say love and darkness. <laughs> love and darkness <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the richness and darkness. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I yeah, I don't know. That's just a place where I like to be dwelling, where I like to, um, you know, sit and be open to what comes through, like the dream time and things like that. And this makes me think of your concept of the mythic imagination. I did your online course, The Mythic Imagination, a couple years ago and just really loved it. Loved getting sort of a larger perspective on all the ways that story informs our lives and uh, our cultures. And yeah, can you just speak a little bit about like engaging with the mythic imagination, what it is to have an active mythic imagination and how this can like inform our daily lives? Yeah, I, I think that is the key phrase. It is it is about it informing our daily lives rather than seeing it as something separate that we dabble in from time to time. And again, you know, coming from that old Western tradition from Plato onwards um, and delving into depth psychology uh, as, as I have done professionally and academically, uh, that that really feeds into my practice. Uh, you know, it's not just an academic and a, a, um, a, a kind of history of ideas type of thing. To me, it is very much about a way of being in the world. And, you know, in a course, an upcoming course that I'm just about to launch, which is a deeper version of that one that you did, I call it courting the world soul. And to me, that is what the mythic imagination is. If we find ways of approaching the world mythically, of underlying, of um, understanding the mythic patterns that are running between beneath the surface of our lives, of understanding the archetypes that call to us, 
um, and, and trying to figure out why, then we're engaging with that other world, with that anima mundi, with that mundus imaginalis, imaginal world, whatever you want to talk about it, which is bringing us more deeply into a, into a, another world of another level of reality, which which is an add-on to this world. And by the way, I should make it clear that that is in no way to suggest that the physical world isn't good. It is, but there are other levels of reality that we can that we can trace. And I think for me, it all goes back to that very ancient concept again Plato and beyond that that the belief in that time was that that every soul chooses to come into this world in a particular place and in a particular time in order to express a particular sense of calling now calling is not about job you know it's not vocational profession it's it is um, to put it very very simplistically for the for the sake of um, of speed it is about Giving it, it is about offering to the world a gift that you uniquely have. So each of us in this beautiful old way of looking at the world would be a, a unique expression of the cosmos. You know, we we have a particular gift that nobody else has. We have a way of being that nobody else has, and we get to come here and do that. But in our culture, we are not taught that this is what we're doing. You know, we're taught that we're some kind of like random blot on a peculiar landscape, that that there is either no meaning or that the meaning is, you know, dogma in, in, a, in a religious sense. And I love this old idea that every one of us came here to be something, to, to do something, whatever it might be, to express something that matters to this world. And I believe, as, as Plato and the ancient Greeks did, as Carl Jung did, as as all of the people in my depth psychology tradition uh, believe, that it is myth and story and archetype and dreams that helps us remember who we are, literally, what it was that we came here to be, that helps us unfold that sense of calling. And so I really believe it is absolutely critical for each of us to remember that sense of meaning, you know, to reclaim that sense of meaning, that there is a point to this, there's a purpose to this that we have something unique to express. And these are the ways in which we can tap back into that that sense of who we are. So that kind of, to me, is what the mythic imagination is about and why it is so absolutely critical to find, to find uh, techniques is the wrong word, but find practices to find possibilities for, for informing us about, about all of that. Yes, yes, that is so much of what this um, podcast is about. And that reminds me of this, I, this word notitia, the attentive noticing of the soul. I believe it was James Hillman who wrote about this and brought it to my attention. Um, but it, it's that idea that in, notice what your soul notices, notice what you're drawn to and pulled towards. And for me, and I think for so many others, just a deeply human thing that those things tend to come to us through myth, symbol, and archetype. And they are showing us our path, our unique path on this earth. Exactly. And and Hillman, what, one of the things that Hillman said when he spoke about, or he wrote about this concept of calling, was that you know, there are clues. We're not. We come into this world having forgotten that, and that's part of the. That's part of the fun, <laughs> or not always the fun. Um, 
that that we there are clues that are offered to us. And one of the clues he said might come um, in the things that you really loved in childhood, you know, particularly mm. the stories that you really loved. And this has been really important in my own life because from a very, very tiny child, I always loved fairy stories. Always, always, always. That was my recourse when, when things weren't great. Um, and I loved with a passion the wise old woman characters, you know, the Baba Yaga in the woods, mm. the wise old woman in the woods, the solitary character who knew, who understood the mysteries, who was deeply connected to her place, who smelt a little bit mossy and a little bit rooty, <laughs> and who didn't put herself out there, but people would find her when they needed her. I loved that character. And it's become kind of clear to me as I've grown older and, you know, struggled through various journeys of my own, that, that that's really kind of, you know, how I envisage my own calling into the future, that this is an archetype that I really feel it's important for me to try and embody in the particular way that I might do it. Uh, and I had it when I was a child. Uh, and I think that, you know, that, that's a very simple um, example of this. But there are clues all the way through our lives. And often they come in these archetypal beings in what Jung called the big dream, you know, the dream that you have where you know that there was a message in that dream. It wasn't just some random outpouring. Uh, and to learn to look for those things, to learn to look for the synchronicities, to understand what is a real synchronicity and what frankly is just a coincidence, to look at the symbolic languages, um, whether it be tarot or astrology, you know, these archetypal languages. I don't mean for divination purposes, I mean for understanding what an archetype is and how they um, offer themselves in the world. This is a practice and we are not taught it in our culture. And so that really is what I'm trying to do in teaching the mythic imagination is just teaching people to look at the world in slightly different ways, to be looking for the clues, to know what the clues are, where they might come, what's real, what's kind of like imagined. Um, and it's 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 such rewarding and, and lovely work. It really is. And um, you've piqued my curiosity in your own life. How do you tell coincidence from synchronicity? Um, because it's a, to me, it's very much about being grounded. And it comes back mm -hmm. to, by grounded, I mean, literally, I mean, in your place. Um, so for it, for example, uh, let me give, think of a simple example, a simple example. Um, I remember being in a, on a, a retreat in, here in Ireland with with someone um, who who loved hares and and saw hares as her particular symbolic animal. You know, hares meant something to her. She loved she loved what a hare represented. And the first morning that we were there, she came in running, very excited. She had seen a hare outside the front door of the place where she was staying, and it was a message for her. And and I didn't have the heart to tell her that hairs were everywhere in that place. You know, there were hairs everywhere. There was nothing unique. There was nothing different about that hair being there in that place that morning, even though, you know, she saw some meaning in it. And if we don't know our places, if we don't know the creatures on it, then it's very easy to see um, symbolism and meaning where actually this is just the backdrop against which sim symbolism and meaning happens. Do you see what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. So, you know, somebody could come here and uh, in my place and say, oh, my goodness, I saw a crow today. And it would just be like, oh, come on, you know, the, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you see a crow uh, like a hundred times a day. Now, if that if you knew that, if you know where crows were, if you know what crows did, and then you saw something different, uh, then you would be telling synchronicity from 
background noise. And so to me, a lot of it is very much about understanding literally the ground of our being. It's, you know, whether it be literally the place where our feet are planted or what is happening in the world around us. It's about observation. It's about acutely observing the world around you observing the people around you so that you know when something is different. You just know. Mm, Yes. And that doesn't mean it's not special when you see an animal that you love, you know, but maybe is not such a deeply meaningful synchronicity. Exactly. I mean, I think the animals that connect us to our places are, are really very important, and and that you know that's in no way to denigrate that connection. But uh, to see that as to see that as a, something that was unusual means that you don't really understand. You know, you're you're not really attuned to the place and to the to the the spirit of a place. And so that's what I think is very important to really really understand the world around us, to really be watching all of the time, so that we can pick up on these clues when they come to us and and then we are grounded rather than just always in our heads otherwise the imagination is always in our heads do you see mm-hmm. you know we're, we're never actually grounding it in the world where we live mm, yes that's a really helpful distinction um as someone who's interested in all this stuff clearly i look back on some things in the past that i thought were like amazing synchronicities you know and i'm like oh i think i was kind of just yeah. too in my head with with that mm. uh, not really grounded in my yeah. body and yeah yeah. Um, so that's helpful. Exactly. And it, it reminds me, okay, so I want to transition now into speaking a little bit about, about your most recent book, The Enchanted Life. I love how you write about how, you know, you wrote about the mythic imagination, everything we've talked about in If Women Rose Rooted. And then you heard from people who are like, great, now how do I actually do this? You know, I've got the concept mm-hmm. down. How do I bring yeah. this into my real life? And so you wrote The Enchanted Life. Which, which is really, yeah, how to re-enchant our daily lives. And um, you write about this idea, one way to do that is through bodyfulness as opposed to mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, I have a strange relationship with mindfulness. Um, <laughs> I think it's very wonderful, but, but what it does, I think, if it, it, it obviously there, there are many ways of teaching mindfulness and there are very wonderful ways and there are some that, that aren't quite grasping the meaning of, of you know, where it came from, which is very much the the Buddhist tradition. And I think it can lock us too much on, I think if it's not done well, it can lock us inside our heads. You know, um, the idea is that mindfulness is supposed to get you out of these, these trains of thought where literally our thought just runs away with us and, uh, you know, we're unconscious most of the time. But if it overly trains you to be too conscious of your um, of your of the inside of your head of your of your kind of like bodily functions of your breathing or whatever then it is in a sense preventing you if it's done badly from opening up to to the rest of the world around you if I can make that distinction so I think it really to me it's it, it's I think what is needed is a is a deeper kind of noticing the world than this constantly coming back to my breath or constantly, um, you know, standing back from my thoughts and and letting them kind of happen without me. I think it's much more a sense of engagement with the other um, animate beings in the world around us. And, you know, in in the way that I look at it, and certainly in, in my ancestral tradition, that means everything. Everything is animate. Everything is waiting there to be in relationship with us. And I worry that mindfulness, because it kind of brings us back to our own body, to our own breathing, to our own thoughts, prevents us from entering into relationship with a land which badly, badly wants to be in relationship with us. 
Mm-hmm. So that's kind of my my gripe, I suppose, with, yeah. with some of the, the ways in which mindfulness is taught. I love it. And I love the idea of bodyfulness. Just, just that one word really helps to shift something for me. Um, and I love the idea of enchantment too. Can you tell us the etymology of this word? Yeah, it comes from um, the Latin um, encantare, literally to sing into. Um, and and so it's really um, to me that is a very active process. You know, you are you're you're singing yourself into the world in a sense, um, and and it's coming back at you. Uh, in the old Celtic traditions, incantations again, you know, part part of the same word were absolutely critical. They really believed that if you said certain things or if you sung certain things at the right time, in the right place, in the right way, that you literally changed the fabric of the universe. So this sense of really being involved in the world, of singing yourself into it, is to me what enchantment is about. Because it's one of those words, a little bit like myth, that is used in so many different ways. And some people use it in a very airy, fairy, not very grounded way. Um, but to me, it's really not. It's a it's a very embodied um, uh, way of of approaching the world. It's really very much about being in it with all of your senses and more than your senses, um, rather than this kind of like slightly magical, airy fairy way that some people sometimes use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that word so much, and the the root of it there. Um, so. Another of my favorite practices that you give in this book as a way to re-enchant your life and come back into just daily, again, really simple, deeply human relationship with the land around us is the idea of telling stories to the land. Can you tell us about how you stumbled upon that? Yeah, I, I, well, it really, it's just that, you know, when I was in Lewis, as, um, as I said, there were very few people there and, and I, I had no one to talk to. My husband was off doing his, uh, doing kind of different things at the time and I felt out of relationship with people. So I only had a relationship with the land and I talked to it. You know, I would I would walk the, the land in the mornings with the dogs and, and I would talk to, to a mountain that I saw as the Kaliach personified. I would talk to the sea. I would talk to a seal. I would talk to the crows. And I, that was what really made me have the deepest deepest relationship with any place that I've ever had in my life. And I think that sense of letting the land hearing your hear your voice is such an important one because, you know, we speak to people that we're in relationship with. That's how we do it. You know, speech is an important part of it, isn't it? You know, we tell each other stories about the way we are, about what happened to us, about the way that we think the world is. And so if we're really going to see the land and the creatures in it as 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 beings that we can have relationship with, then I think that exchange of, of voices is, is a big part of it. So I love to sit and where if I'm in a new place and I'm trying to, to get some sense of it, um, I will either sing um, or say a poem or tell a story and you know, I'm I'm way past the point of feeling silly doing that now, mm-hmm. uh, and it just makes me feel as if it's um, yeah that it is a genuine re- relationship rather than something on which I'm plonked as a kind of background drop to you know my very human life. You know, right? And if we're going to be cultivating this kind of relationship with the earth and um, espousing the belief that the earth is real and sentient or alive and sentient and the plants and the animals too, but then we're not speaking yeah. out loud to it, <laughs> you know, to all these things. Exactly. 
Exactly. And, and in the book, I mention a, a wonderful example by a, a sadly now dead Australian anthropologist called Deborah um, Bird Rose when she was talking about the, she did a lot of work with um, um, Aboriginal um, uh, peoples in Australia. And she said that they have this concept of country, and this is almost country with a capital C, you know, it is a very specific term, which kind of, um, in a nutshell, represents the spirit of a place. And she was talking about this lovely idea that if you went into country, you know, which would be a region, say a tribal, um, a tribal homeland. If you went into country and you didn't acknowledge it, then country would think that you were sneaking around. And I thought that's mm. perfect. You know, yes, absolutely. You have to say, hello, here I am. Just as you would introduce yourself to a person that you just met. Here I am. Here's who I am. You know, I'll tell you a little bit of something about myself. And it's just a respectful way of engaging with a place. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. I loved that. Absolutely. Yeah. Because the, the land knows you're there. This this came up in my second mm-hmm. interview with Asia Suler that, you know, the when the birds start chittering, like they're talking about you. You know, they don't they don't do that when a human hasn't walked into the forest. This is something she learned in a bird watching class she took. And then we know when there's mycelial mats underneath the the ground that that mycelium is like weighing you with each step that you take. It's aware that you're there, you know, and that this is the neural network sure. of the earth. Yeah, for sure. I mean, every every ancestral, every indigenous tradition knows this to be the case. And and um, yeah, it's kind of funny that, that we are just rediscovering it really. But but I think the the the, the, the real thing is about relationship and it's, it is an understanding that the land really wants to be in relationship with whoever is on it, wherever you come from, however long you are there for, that it really wants to be in, in relationship with you and this sense of engagement in any place where your feet are planted, whether it's for five minutes or for all of your life, that there, to me, there is a duty um, to engage, there's a responsibility to engage with it because I do often think, you know, when I call this course and some of the work that I'm doing now courting the world soul. It's not just a courtship where we try and introduce ourselves and reconnect. I I believe very firmly that by turning our attention to things, we are keeping we are keeping those things alive. And so the the land is thirsty for relationship. The earth is thirsty for relationship. And the idea that by by being very vividly in a place and of a place and engaging with the beings on that place. I do believe that in these really, really challenging times, we are doing that, that is enough to keep to keep our, our places alive. And and if we only ever do, you know, we always think about um, our role in the world or calling perhaps as grandiose acts. You know, we must save things. We mm. must we must do big deeds. And I believe that the most important thing that any of us can do, any one of us and all of us can do is by keeping our places alive, by talking to it, by praising it, by telling it how much we love it and how much we appreciate the air and the food and the water and the companionship of all of the the creatures on it. And that is kind of like you can just imagine this great light in, you know, in the in the world soul, in the imaginal world, this great light shining and shining and shining because we're feeding it. And that is an image that I hold whenever times get so tough that I begin to feel um, you know, that it's all pointless. I just keep remembering, I hold this image in my mind that by talking to a crow, I'm making that light shine a little bit brighter and mm-hmm. I won't let it die. Mm, so helpful and hopeful and beautiful and encouraging. Thank you, Sharon. Um, tell the people about your books, upcoming workshops, your online courses, everything that you have on offer. 
Well, the best way to find out is to go to my website, which is www.sharonblackie.net, um, and you'll find pretty much everything you need to know there. Uh, I do have a, a major course, which I'm doing for the first time in a more interactive way with live webinars and um, you know live teaching online for people who can't come to in-person workshops, which is called Courting the World Soul, and that is starting in October. Uh, so that is kind of core teachings, if you like, for, for the way ahead. And I have a new book coming out, which is called Foxfire Wolfskin, which is a set of fairy tale reimaginings about shape-shifting women. And um, you'll recognize some of the characters in there from Hans Christian Andersen's Snow Queen to Baba Yaga. But it's a little bit of reimagining them for the times. So they have a little bit of an ecological edge. Of course, they have a slightly feminist edge. And it's all very much about bringing about about reawakening that sense of wildness both inside us and outside us i'm so excited for that one i loved your version of the selkie <laughs> the selkie myth in if women rose rooted and um, just yeah really excited to see what you do with those old stories and archetypes and the online course as well sounds amazing and then you'll be in california in september too for any of my fellow californians who are listening yeah, I'll be at the Ersulin Institute doing a weekend workshop there, and I'll be up at beautiful Point Reyes um, giving a day-long workshop and an evening talk. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to being back there again. Yes. Okay, Sharon, thank you so very much. It's truly an honor to talk to you today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. That was a lovely discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there. And I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E 
S-I-O-U-X, from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.